years ago in that side of my life tied with writing. My job was to um, meet with and interview an NFL veteran who was wearing a Super Bowl ring. He was a, I believe he was a left tackle. And he told me a story about an adjustment made in his life. And uh, he, had, he was doing pretty well in college, and he had already made All-American status as a left tackle. He was a beast. He was something else. And he'd, he had a long testimony about meeting the Lord. He grew up without a father, but the Lord sent along a, a stepfather that stepped into his life and, and helped anchor him along the way. But anyway, he made it all the way through. Uh, got into college, had a stellar career in college, obviously got the All-American status, and then he got drafted for the NFL. So he shows up to camp. Just because you're drafting the NFL, how many of you know it doesn't mean you're going to make it, even if you're All-American. We've had a lot of All-Americans that fizzled real quick. Well, this coach was determined to teach him a few things, and uh, he had one line coach in particular that said, son, your stance isn't right. And he didn't want to listen to him. He said, what are you talking about? I'm all American. I've got all my credentials here. And so he lined him up and had some seasoned pros go against him, and they knocked him on his rear over and over and over again. Then he took him aside and said, now let me show you something. And what he did is he got down in his stance, and he made a one-inch adjustment. He said, you need to move I think it was his left foot or something. You need to move your foot one inch back. He said, this is stupid. And he almost walked off. But something inside said no, because he, you know, he, he thought he knew it all. But he turned back, and he submitted to that line coach. And after about two or three weeks of practice with this new position, one-inch adjustment. He made the one-inch adjustment, and from that time on, nobody on that team could defeat him in that position. He rapidly went, as a newbie in the NFL, went up to take the lead position. And then after that, he started becoming famous in the NFL. And this is some time ago. But I, that struck me that sometimes those adjustments midstream in your life or midstream in a problem, take you from being a small-time hero to a big-time champion. And what I want to do today is I want to share with you some stuff that, that uh, I and many others way before me have paid a price for. Uh, when my youngest son, Ian, decided to go into the Air Force, I told him to pay attention to sergeants especially the ones with scars, especially the old craggy ones with wrinkles, especially the ones that have been in deployment in combat zones. I said, son, they'll save your life. Pay attention to people that have survived, especially in dangerous professions. They can save your life by sharing with you wisdom so you don't have to make the mistakes that can take you out before your time. I want to do that today. I want to talk to you about scarred faith. Years ago, I really had what I would call my first vision, but it was just something the Lord, I felt the Lord showed me as a young minister uh, 
Before I was ever a pastor, I was just serving on staff. Much of my life was spent serving beneath, helping lift other people up. It still is, frankly. Um, and that was that the uh, generation to come, which is now, I'm looking at them. I'm looking at you. This was years ago. This was in 1984. God gave me this vision. But it was of a scarred army, most of them younger, and they had scars all over them. And the Lord, I sensed He spoke to me and said that this army that's coming is a scarred army. They've been through stuff, and they've proven that God is true. And that's what he was going to change the world with, was with this scarred army that had already had mistakes and failures, and they had seen God's faithfulness in hell. They had seen him lift them out of stuff and garbage and mistakes and their wrong decisions and wrong stuff coming at them. They had proven that God was faithful. They didn't have to have someone tell them God's faithful. They knew he was because they had a history with God. I want to talk to you about scarred faith. I also call it long-form faith. Uh, Sean was mentioned to you earlier. Many of you know Sean. He's sitting on the next to the last row and extreme left rocking while I'm preaching. Right, Shani? Yep. Uh, my wife and I had to discover long-form faith. That wasn't the first time, but that was one of the biggest times in our life where we had to stand in faith with God when prayer at the altar did not give us an instant answer. I believe in prayer, and I encourage you to come to the altar because I have received many answers to God supernaturally when people prayed at an altar or in my home or in a life group or in all kinds of places. I believe in prayer. I believe that we get strong answers sometimes, very powerful answers. But also there is a place for long-form faith. Following Jesus requires you and me to embrace long-form pain and tension between today's unanswered prayer and God's faithfulness. Does that make sense to you? There's, I'm going to say it in another way, probably several different... Let me put that. Faith is the bridge that spans the gap between present pain and eternal promise. We have tension. We live in a real world. One of the problems that that has caused the church to become irrelevant today is because we, we talk like we live in a plastic world. You spout a promise, say a prayer, and go your way. Go to the pickup window like the pharmacy and get your fix. But we need to be developing followers who follow Jesus, who have a long-term view. And you know that sometimes you're going to get knocked on your rear. Sometimes you get knocked down, and you get knocked down again, and you get knocked down again, and it just keeps coming. You need to learn how to stand. One of the earliest things I learned even in sports, <clears throat> of course, my sports was pretty much uh, kept with wrestling where one skinny, bony guy wrestled another skinny, bony guy. So that was my big sport that I did, <clears throat> and it was tough enough. But I learned very quickly that if I wanted to really excel, I needed to go big. And so um, throughout my wrestling career, I'd usually pick the biggest people. Now, I would go with fast people, too. I'd go with people my size. 
or just slightly larger that were very quick because I knew that in wrestling I needed to learn how to deal with people who are very fast. But I really needed to learn how to deal with people who were much larger than what I could handle. So I loved to wrestle heavyweights. I mean, I won all the time. It was just great training, guys. I mean, even if I got them in a pinning position, I was this little gnat trying to, you know, pin an elephant, so I got flopped all over the place. But I tell you what, I got used to wearing down opponents just because I had endurance. And I want to teach you how to have endurance, how to have endurance as believers. This thing I'm talking about, scarred faith, long-form faith, Jesus had it, uh, Paul had it, so did the twelve. Even Jesus' family had it later on after they got over their doubt and unbelief. The believers who were crucified on the crosses leading into Rome after Jesus' resurrection, they had it. Fact is, so do you. But we need to develop this long-form faith. Now, you see this described in Hebrews 12. I'm going to read this quickly for you. This is Hebrews 12, 1 through 3. Real familiar passage. This is the NIV. This is about, this is Paul describing Jesus and how long-form faith had a role in his life. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance, long-form faith, the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. By the way, that's one of the keys to long-form faith. Fix your eyes on Jesus, not your problem. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. In other words, for something set before him in the future, he put up with today's garbage and today's pain, today's disappointment, today's absolute frustration. scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition. In his case, it was from sinners or from the human race. So that you will not grow weary and lose heart. That's my purpose today. I want to encourage you. I'd like to pretend that, that we're the, the church of more than enough, and we're always blessed, and everything's great, and it's always sunshiny. Not. Is that, am I speaking to anybody? Anybody ever had garbage come your way? Have any of you spoke French and it wasn't really French? <laughs> I do sometimes. I'd like to say I didn't, but I do. It comes out in the worst times, worst places. Hallelujah. I once uh, uh, was assigned to, it sounds real glamorous, but it wasn't. I was once assigned to go to London. It was my first trip overseas, and I didn't know what in the world I was doing. But I had to go uh, meet with an author named Dave Marquis. <clears throat> Dave Marquis, at one point, was probably the top bassist playing bass in London. <clears throat> and he had played for Rolling Stones and recording sessions and the Beatles and stuff like that. But he's most famous. You guys would know him from every bass line in every Pink Panther movie. But he played the bass in that. Okay, so you'd know him from that. But he was better known in the music world as um, the bassist for, I never can remember his name, Eric Clapton. So he's, he really had some chops, and he would, in his car, he would have 
you know, two or three electric basses, and he'd also have his big string bass. And depending, he'd go play for the, the London Symphor, uh, Philharmonic or Symphony uh, in the morning, and he'd go do recording sessions with these guys when he's not touring. So he's really famous, but along the way he picked up terrible drug habits and alcoholism to the point where he was about ready to lose it. Let me put it this way. At one point in a recording session with the Rolling Stones, they said, we can't handle this guy. If the Rolling Stones say, you're so stoned out they can't handle you, you've got a problem. That's a clue. So Dave Marquis had a serious problem. It was deteriorating his life. His wife uh, named Z, she had had it, and she was leaving him. He was an absolute mess. Somewhere along the line, there's another major musician in the London scene that made friends with him who was a believer. And... Uh, Unknown to Dave Marquis, he gave it to a man who lived a life of prayer. And I don't even know the guy's name. He was a paraplegic. Uh, the paraplegia was so bad that he was totally confined to a bed. All he could do was pray. So he made that his life mission. So uh, this friend gave Dave Marquis' picture and named him. And this guy had a, an assistant that would that literally put the pictures of people he is praying for, his prayer assignments, on the roof or on the ceiling of his room. And he laid in that bed day after day, and he would pray or intercede for people he didn't even know. And he began to pray for Dave Marquis. This went on for two or three years. Dave had no clue. Finally, the day came where Dave Marquis hit bottom hard enough that the message of Jesus got through, and he finally surrendered his life, his future, his marriage, his career, everything. He just gave it to Jesus and began to follow Jesus. And uh, later that year that he came to the Lord, this friend, this Christian musician friend came to him and described how this paraplegic prayer warrior or intercessor had been praying for him. And so the first thing Dave said, and Dave told me this in his living room, he said, I immediately said, I want to meet him. Can you take me to him? I want to meet this guy that prayed for me without even knowing me. <clears throat> and this friend said, well, I wish I could, but you know that um, the day you came to Jesus is the day this man died. It's almost like Dave Marquis was this intercessor's last life assignment. And he died never knowing that the man he had prayed for for years, the impossible black sheep of London, had come to Jesus and turned his life around. The reason I'm telling you this story is this intercession had long-form faith. He had scarred faith, but he was able to believe past what he saw. He prayed every day believing that Dave Marquis was going to lay down the rebellion, lay down the anger, and lay down the drugs and the booze. And he's going to let Jesus come in and become Lord of his life. And the prayer was answered. Many of us are here this morning because we had praying grandmothers or aunts or mothers who would not let go. And some of them even went on to be with the Lord before you came to Jesus. I'm going to tell you that is long-form faith and practice. How many of you as parents or grandparents, if you can show it safely, uh, are praying for kids or grandkids to come to Jesus? Raise your hand. 
Are you praying that they don't fall? Okay. You need long-form faith. You're practicing long-form faith. I'm talking about the kind of faith that can handle disappointment, the kind of faith that will get you through raising kids, the kind of faith that will get you past that crippling addiction or those fears that grip you every day of your life. Uh, It's this kind of faith that will take you through those impossible points in life where you feel absolutely out of control. There's not a thing you can do in your power to change what's happening. I'm telling you, God is faithful. They hit so many scriptures in the worship time today. I love it. One of the scriptures that we do not understand because we don't go to the trouble to understand it, and we almost hate it when it's in songs. Remember that passage? Have you ever had trouble with that portion of the song that said, though he slay me, I will serve him? Do you have trouble singing that? Some of you do. You have, I mean, if you're honest with me, you say, that can't be theologically correct. Though he slay me, God's not going to kill me. God doesn't kill people. Well, because Ananias and Sapphira might have a problem with that. But anyway, I, I will tell you that it is the reason it's there in the book of Job, it is an attitude. It is a decision. He's not theologically saying God's going to kill him. He said, but even if he did, even if he never answered my prayer, even if he never was the God I think I serve, as Pastor Devin said, I'm going to serve him. I've made up my mind. One of the strengths of my, uh, I grew up in the old Pentecost tradition. And uh, some of you here, anybody have any roots of that? Or is it just stuff you heard about and run from? Okay, okay. well, you know. The old Pentecostals, and they used, they weren't, uh, we weren't really swift in some areas of theology. Maybe most areas of theology. That wasn't our strength. Our, our strengths were in different areas. But one of the things... Uh, and later I ran from all that and went the opposite direction, you know. I thought, I think I'll join the Roman Catholic Church just to get away from all the emotionalism and all that. Or maybe I'll go, in fact, when I went to, uh, to college, I went to an Episcopal church for a while, which is fine. Uh, but I want to tell you what I did learn in that place, and I value and I'll value to my last days, is the attitude, though he slay me, I will serve him. There is an absolute determination, even in my old roots. And there's a lot of stuff that I don't necessarily agree with today, but I will tell you I agree 100% with that determination that if I am poor all of my life, I will serve God. If everything goes wrong in my life, I will serve God. If I have only one prayer out of 50 answered, I will still serve God and I will believe him for the other 49. And I use that, and uh, Juliana uses that as we pray for Sean. Because when we began to pray for Sean, he was diagnosed uh, with autism and with severe crippling epilepsy um, around the age of three or four, as I recall, maybe up to five. But it was, it was a difficult time. And we prayed for him. We took him to uh, healing meetings. We've, we've, we do everything we can as caring parents. And, of course, we saw it medical attention the best you can find. At that time, we were in, in the East Coast, and so I remember uh, Pastor Juliana at that time driving alone from the 
rural area of Pennsylvania into Washington, D.C. area, Bethesda, Maryland, alone with, uh, well, she'd take little kids with her, by herself dragging Devin along over and over and over and over again into Washington, D.C., which isn't the safest place in the world, and uh, for medical treatments and for uh, all kinds of diagnostics and stuff. We did everything we could, but we had to settle on some things. I still believe God's a healer. If you're sick and I pray for you, I'll pray the prayer of faith, and I'll believe God to raise you up right then. And sometimes it happens then, but other times it takes place over time. And in some cases, as in Sean's case, we're still standing in faith. And he's 24 now. So it's been 20 years we've been standing for Sean's healing. There are people praying for him from coast to coast. There are people praying for him around the world. There have been many prophecies that he will rise up and be totally healed. I'll stand on those prophecies. If it doesn't happen in my lifetime, I'm going to operate in the kind of faith that believes God. We have to do that. Things aren't always going to go your way. Stuff hits the fan for everybody. Because we live in a fallen world, so it comes. So what are you going to do when things don't work perfectly? What happens if your theology gets fractured? Because it will. We don't know. We only know in part today. The Apostle Paul who wrote you know, two-thirds of the New Testament or so, we get a great deal of our theology, our knowledge of God and how He works from Paul's writings. Hey, he's the one that told us too. We see in part. We know in part. So you need to understand that God is so great and so large and so massive. What the Word shares with us is absolutely true. But we're told even in the Gospels that if all that Jesus said and did in three and a half years had been committed to books, the whole world can contain, contain the narrative of what Jesus did. So what we're given is an outline and some basics here. God is so much. There's so much to God. Understand that we need to have the ability to handle tension in our lives. From a crappy day, pardon my French, to a good day, there is often a span of time. How are we going to make it? How are we going to have the strength and the guts to carry it? I'm talking about something that can carry your marriage through the valley of the shadow of death. It can take you through crisis. It can take you through a lousy diagnosis. If I were to open my shirt today, which I will not do, you would see train tracks. I have massive chest and everything, but you'd see train tracks right down here from a quadruple bypass. Uh, and I have a brother who just got back from having the same cosmetic surgery on his chest, too. But he's doing great. Praise God. Brother Leo, I'm thankful that you're standing. There are people in this room who have gone through amputations. You have gone through um, terrible diagnoses. There are cancer survivors in this room. There are incest survivors in this room. There are people who have survived betrayal the pain of divorce, uh, the sorrow of your own mistakes. 
Uh, I often tell people who come to the church for the first time, you can relax. There's, well, I don't know if it relaxes them. I said, you need to understand, there's people in here with rap sheets that are pretty long and they're rejoicing over the love of Jesus. And there's people that have never been arrested in their life, but they have lived through harrowing experiences in hospitals and in problems in their life, and they can testify how good God is. Hallelujah. Let me get to my notes here so I can get into some of the Word. You need to understand, it takes long-form faith. It takes scarred faith to carry you from experiencing God's presence in our meeting or in your time of prayer or in a life group when you're worshiping together or just fellowshipping. But it takes, it takes this long-form faith to move you from being in His presence to doing His will in a world and in situations where he seems far away. It's crucial to maturity. And how do I know this? Well, we're told in Scripture, I'll go to Hebrews again, Hebrews 5, 8 through 10. This is the Message Bible. It's going to describe something about Jesus. While he lived on earth anticipating death, Jesus cried out in pain and wept in sorrow. This is describing the garden. He cried out in pain and wept in sorrow as he offered up priestly prayers to God. Because he honored God, God answered him. Though he was God's son, he learned trusting obedience by what he suffered, just as we do. Then, having arrived at the full stature of his maturity, and having been announced by God as high priest in the order of Melchizedek, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who believingly obey him. Hebrews 11.6 says it this way, And without faith it is impossible to please God, because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Only long-form faith and scarred faith can produce the perfect will of God on earth, because to have faith, in effect, really, all faith is long-form faith in a way. Because faith is taking hold of something which you cannot see and standing on it until it comes into being in this world. That's faith. Standing on something that you cannot see, something you don't possess right now, a promise of God, the purpose of God, the character of God that you've learned through the Scriptures and through one another. Jesus was perfected through suffering. Now, you and I, I'd like to say that we're not supposed to, we won't have to go on the cross. I will say that Jesus went on the cross in a way that none of us ever have to do. He did it once and for all. But then Jesus had this troubling thing. He said, if anyone would follow me, let him take up his cross daily, deny himself, we hate that part, and follow me. That's the description of a Christian. It's not just coming to the altar. The altar is how we come, or not the altar, but when we come to Jesus, receive him as our Lord, that's the beginning. But the first thing he says is, don't sit down, follow. As soon as you ever maybe walked on the job on the first day on your job, and you're expecting to sit and maybe have an orientation, the first thing they do is take you out and it's hands-on. That's Jesus. In the kingdom, the minute we come to him, the work begins. 
We're not saved by works. We're saved unto good works. You don't get saved by being good, but once you're saved, you do good. Does that make sense? What we like to do is skip that second part. I'm saved. Hallelujah. I can live like the devil now. I'm fine. Not. Right away, we're taken into the kingdom. Okay. The parable of the sower actually describes a lot about long-form faith, and I won't go into it, but if you, if you look at it, it shows up in many places, but in Mark 4, 14 through 20, you get some examples, but as Jesus goes down and describes this farmer sowing seed, he describes the first one um, where it falls along the path and the birds take it. That describes when the things of God are stolen from us. The second one talks about seed falling in rocky places, and when the heat comes, persecution, problems come, people flake out. That's withered faith. Then the next one talks about people who have, uh, they have great faith and they get a good start, but then they're distracted by uh, wanting to get rich. In other words, loving or worshiping money when they shouldn't. Money's not bad, it's a tool, but when you start worshiping that sucker, it's an idol, and it'll take you down. So these people get distracted by that or by the worries of this life, which many of us as believers get into. We wrestle with worry and distraction. And then the final group are those who allow the Word to get into them, the Word of the kingdom, and then they produce. They're heavy producers in their lives. We get on, I'm going to make some points and finish this thing up. Remember, we're talking about scarred faith or long-form faith. I want you guys to be able to handle stuff. People who are shallow in anything, there's a fancy-wancy word, it's a French word called dilettante. It means fake wannabes. <clears throat> Unfortunately, many of us Christians, we can really get into being dilettante or fake wannabe Christians. And we do great until stuff happens. I remember one time I was talking, uh, one guy came up to me and, and uh, he decided he's going to try that tithing thing. And you guys know around here we don't do hardcore tithing preaching. We, you know, uh, God love you and work with you no matter what. Um, but he decided that he would try the hardcore tithing thing. And so he, he gave some money and he came back the next week and said, Preacher, I have a problem with you. That tithing didn't work for me. I was expecting 10 times. That was supposed to be multiplied 10 times. And I gave you $10. Nothing happened. And I had to explain to him it doesn't work that way. Need a little long-form faith, maybe longer than a week. That might be good. We didn't get legalistic. I believe it's a privilege to give. We need to go into that heart thing where when you give your life to God, you give him everything, including, you know, wallet and pocketbook and all that stuff. And it's just a privilege to give to someone who loves us and gives us so much. We discover his character and his nature, that he's the God, he is the God of more than enough. And he's the God who always gives the all-sufficient one. He's amazing. Now, I want to give you a little help. We've talked about problems, and I haven't, you know, there's a ton of stories I could share. I wish I'd learned all of the lessons of, of faith, and I, I kind of dread even talking about it because I know that there's more coming. But we have been through a lot of situations where we've had to trust God in what seemed at the time like impossible situations. And God has come through powerfully for us. And I'll tell a few of those. I want to tell you, first of all, that the disciples failed these tests. 
The Lord is really patient in how he leads us and guides us. You know, if you are following Jesus, which is what it means to be a Christian and a believer, one of the comforting things is that he sent the Holy Spirit to be with us, and he is our teacher, and he's very patient. He works with us through our failures. As people crack pots, messed up people, which we are, we learn best through trial and error, through trial and failure and screw-ups, and then we get it right. And it's usually repetition that helps us get there. Well, that happened with the disciples in Mark 4, 35 through 41. This is a familiar passage. It's where um, uh, they're crossing the sea and a storm comes. I'm going to read it for you real quick. That day when evening came, Jesus said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side. He's just given them... Uh, the Sermon on the Mount. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. A furious squall came up, and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? Now, these guys speaking were professional fishermen. At least a good number of them were. They were used to that exact body of water as the Sea of Galilee. They were used to that. They knew this was actually was a dangerous storm, but they forgot something. So Jesus got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the, quiet, the wind died down, and it was completely calm. And he said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? And they were terrified and asked each other, Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Sometimes we forget who's in the boat with us when we're called. And we mess up all the time. But the Lord patiently works with you. It was right after that that Jesus cast all the demons, the legion of demons, out of the demoniac and transformed his life. These guys got chance after chance to have their faith built. Guess what? You and I have chance after chance in the Lord to build our faith. It's a process. It's a process. I have a whole string of scars, not just on my body, but on, in my spirit of having to trust God in difficult situations. <clears throat> I have an even longer list of failures, complete mess-ups where I fleshed out. I have many of those as a pastor too. I'd love to say that in my years as a pastor, I did great. I think in years of my years as a pastor, I have probably more failures than I have successes. It's by God's mercy that I've, I have survived or that there's any value to what I did. It's true for all of us. Fortunately, he has great mercy, and he has great grace that he gives to us. I want to help you guys be as strong as you possibly can. Um, trying to decide which stories to tell here. I'm going to tell one in the past. One of our struggles was <clears throat> when we moved here from Pennsylvania in the year 2000, uh, we, f we felt called to this church to come, not as pastors. There's a great pastor here at the time. Uh, we called to, to be in a church that was a family. This church from its earliest days has been a family. And uh, uh, but we brought a very angry teenager. God had spoken to us clearly that we were to move from Pennsylvania. At that point, I had my own company. 
I was in the ministry, but really I was really in full-time, had my own business, and we could have moved anywhere in the country. We had all these attractive places that we thought about, we talked about, and then we prayed about it. Eh. At that point, God gave us an A word. <laughs> I couldn't believe He did it. It might as well be Egypt. But he gave us the A word, and it wasn't just A word, it was actually two A's, because it was Arkansas and then Alma. So we came here. But what we did is we brought a very angry teenager with us. We all love Pastor Devin today. <laughs> how many of you, uh, probably older folks, how many of you re knew Pastor Devin when we walked through the door in the early 2000s? Would you call him an angry young man? <laughs> Some of you have other words for that. Anyway, all I know is we had, we had some, uh, some ushers and uh, that actually, they would greet everybody. They were great. They would greet everybody. Whenever Devin came in the door, they'd just kind of back up and let him walk through. <laughs> He's really angry because we'd pull them out of We'd pulled him out of school. He had worked all those years as a stranger in Pennsylvania, coming from this area, to finally fit in, to make it, basketball star type thing. Everything was made, and we jerked him out of there to come back to Arkansas because God said, come back. We didn't know why. We just knew he said, do it. So we did it, and we had an angry young man. This Devin was smart then, as he is now, and he knew so that he wouldn't be grounded forever till he was 35. He should speak, you know, and not just do the stone wall. So he only spoke just enough not to get in trouble. Other than that, he shut us down, especially me. Shut me down, mainly. And uh, he was very angry, and it showed. It, wasn't, it was very hard on, uh, on anybody, the various people that were his youth pastors at that time. Grace, grace, grace. I had many a talk with them. Uh, and it was difficult. So we had a difficult transition, and this was my firstborn son. There had been a prophecy over him, multiple prophecies even the day of his birth at City of Faith in Tulsa. A nurse prophesied over him as she held him right after his birth, and uh, I prophesied over him, and a number of other things happened. But I knew there was a call of God on his life, but he was hurting and wounded so much, he just didn't want much to do with anything about this church. So we began to pray. That was a transition where I had to believe what I had heard from God and trust God that He would take this angry young Adam bomb and form him and frame him. And um, God did it, but it took time. It took time. And it took adversity. And it took difficulty. And uh, I can tell you that it worked out. We all said the same thing for our, our daughter. Vanessa, she is now 40-something. Anyway, uh, we made mistakes as parents, and we were a blended family, and so Vanessa had some wounds in her heart. She just had father wounds. And uh, uh, it took time for her to allow me to even be part of that healing. And uh, we watched God work miracles in her life and turn her around and become one of the greatest moms we've ever seen. But uh, I, want to, I want to encourage you guys, God's faithful, but it takes this determination to have 
uh, a strong, strong root. Now we have, as believers, my last little note here, we have two different root systems and we need them both. One is a deep root. There are both in grasses, there are some grass forms have deep roots. Unfortunately, crabgrass may have one of the deepest roots among the grasses. You ever notice how tough those stupid things are? And there's another type of grass, a family of grasses that can handle high heat and high trampling. That's why they're, they're popular for football fields. They're popular for golfing surfaces. And that's zoysia and bermuda. There's probably two or three others. I'm not an expert. But that one is, I call it a community root. It's an interlocked root system that covers a large area. The same is true in trees. Oak trees are famous for their taproot that goes deep. They'll go all the way down and find water, even going through stone. Uh, other types of trees do the same thing. <clears throat> then there's a type of tree known in the northwest, the great sequoias, and they're an odd tree. They don't have tap roots. They do the community root thing. Wherever you find sequoias, they will be in a grove of sequoia trees. And the roots go out and they interlink with each other. And they survive high winds. Now, they like different environments. They would not survive well in high heat, but they survive in the difficult environment of the Northwest. In the kingdom, we're to have deep roots in God's Word, which changes not. We're to have deep roots in His Spirit and in our personal devotion with Him. But also, we have community roots in the body of Christ. So when we go through the storms of life that come, the garbage that hits the fan in our lives, we are meant to lean on each other. That's why Scripture tells us, bear one another's burdens. Weep with those who weep. Laugh with those who laugh. Live life together as a community. So when you're tapped out, your spouse won't be. When both of you are exhausted to the point where you're ready to give up, please pick up the phone. So I want to encourage you, one of the keys is understanding the two roots that we need. And I, my heart is for you today. I, I sense there's a number of you that are on your last legs. You're, just, you're dealing with stuff. You just wonder, am I going to make it through? You're going to make it through. Number one, you've got a root in Jesus and an eternal kingdom that doesn't fail, in a king that is unlimited in his power, his wisdom, and his love for you. And also, you are planted by the master of all things. You are planted in a body. Scripture says God hath placed each one in the body as it has pleased him. So he places you in his kingdom to interlock roots, to begin living life together. And I'm telling you, we can make it through stuff. We can make it through. And you can do more than just survive. You can be a light and a beacon even in your stuff. Frankly, the biggest impressions that my wife and I have ever had on people's lives hasn't been through our brilliant words. It's been through, somehow, our ability to hold on in storms. And so then we can go with tears in our eyes. There's a day as a young minister or something I might, you know, come and, and thunder God's Word at somebody. I don't know. I was never really comfortable with that kind of stuff. 
but we're much more effective because we come with tears in our eyes because we know what it's like to hurt. We know what it's like to be discouraged, to not have answers when I really desperately want an answer. So I encourage you, you are in an incredible family created by God. There are resources in this place. Somebody here has faced what you're facing. And they've come through on the other side. And yeah, they got scars from the shark bites, but they survived. They lived. And they can encourage you. 